Welcome, you're listening to the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. Here we explore all things related to brain injury with a focus on the role of speech and language therapy within this exciting and ever-changing area. We're your hosts, Helen McLean and Jan McIntosh-Brown. Hi everyone, this is Jan. And this is Helen, hi. Thanks for joining us for another episode of our podcast. I can't believe that we're on to episode three already. Yes, we are. Before we get started, I'd just like to say a thank you to Kenya, who does our editing, and particularly for this episode. Um, this is a two-part episode, by the way, for you listeners. Um, we had some recording difficulties, which have presented in a couple of ways. There's potentially bits where we seem to be talking over each other. There's been some sort of delay or overlapping in the recording. So I do apologize for that. Particularly, there's a lot of active listening, those mm and ah behaviors that come in at odd parts, which um, doesn't sound so great, as well as some distortions when we're speaking. So I do hope you can hang in there. And once again, Thank you very much, Kenya, because it's been challenging. So our topic today today is around research in our day-to-day practice. Um, So I was thinking about it. It's a really good follow-on from our last episode where we had Lynn Grayson coming on to talk about her research. Mm -hmm. If you've not listened to that episode, then of course we highly recommend you going back and listening to that. Um, But we thought we would talk a bit more today about the fact we all know we need to demonstrate our outcomes not just for the benefit of the people that we work with and our services, but also maybe for funders and also for our profession. But maybe if you're like Jan and I, knowing where to start can be difficult. And maybe the prospect of juggling a little bit of research alongside a busy clinical workload can feel a little bit daunting. So we're hoping the chat today will help you feel like you maybe know where to to start taking those first steps. I think it's fair to say you'll probably find that you're already doing the work, but it's maybe working smarter to Mm. benefit yourself and all of us. So Jan's going to introduce our guest in just a moment after this short message. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are of the individual and should not be considered professional advice. If you have a brain injury, suspect you have a brain injury, or think someone you know has a brain injury, please seek dedicated professional advice. I am so delighted to say hello to Dr. Brian O'Neill. Brian is a colleague and a friend of mine who's worked with people with brain injuries for many years. He's a neuropsychologist and is very active with research and supportive of the role of speech and language therapist. (laughs) Yay! So Brian got his honours degree at the Trinity College in Dublin in psychology and then went on to University of Glasgow for his doctorate in clinical psychology, followed by his master's in clinical neuropsychology. Brian's worked in lots of rehabilitation settings, most recently uh, for 11 years at the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Trust. Previous to that, it was with Murdiston Brain Injury Rehabilitation Centre and also the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. 
Brian has also held a research fellowship at the University of Stirling and is currently an honorary senior clinical lecturer at the University of Glasgow. Hope that's all correct, Brian. So, uh, Hello, Jan. Hi, Brian. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me on hi. here. Yes. Oh, we are de absolutely delighted. So please tell us a little bit more about yourself. First off, I think... Um... You know, I've always been interested in, in what we can do for people with brain injury or illness. Um, you know, I was uh, quite young when I kind of first could have had an elderly relative have a stroke. And I figured out that stroke meant you were stricken, you know, like a stricken ship. There was not a lot that was seemed mm -hmm. to be doable for people who'd had strokes. Um, and over the last uh, 20 years or so, that whole perception has changed. Now we call them brain attacks. The change from... The idea of a stroke meaning you were stricken like a stricken ship that nothing could be done about to a brain yep. attack has really kind of introduced this idea that we can do so much from the acute stage and all through rehabilitation and onwards. Um, you know, when someone has an injury to the brain or an illness to the brain, um, we as therapists help them adjust to those changes. Yeah. Um, so as a scientist okay. practitioner, I've been intrigued from the start as to how recently we began systematic efforts in neurorehabilitation. It's just over 100 years since the publication of the first text. Um, so we've got a lot to do and we're doing it in our day to day practice, but we need to kind of like evidence that what we do works. Mm -hmm. in, uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, and hopefully in this podcast, we can kind of elucidate some of the ways we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So before we kind of get into the and bolts of, of chatting about that. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your experience of working specifically with speech and language therapists? Yeah, um, so in my, oh, while I was still an undergraduate, I was given an amazing opportunity to work at the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Dunleary under the neuropsychologist, uh, Dr. Simone Carton. Um, and there I was like catapulted into an MDT for the first time. And Pretty much ever since I've worked uh, in multidisciplinary teams. Which I think is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure that lots of clinical psychologists do get the opportunity to work as part of an MDT. Yeah, certainly uh, during my training, I was aware of, um, you know, still the existence of independent departments of clinical psychology who saw patients in, in, in isolation, relatively from other disciplines. Mm. Um, but now that's that's changed, and most people work within um, either community mental health teams, community or hospital-based learning disability teams, and uh, in my case, kind of um, rehabilitation teams. Mm. So you've worked quite um, quite extensively then with not just speech and language therapists, but maybe with physiotherapists, with occupational therapists, and such. Yes, I have, um, and I, I think that the mutual influences of you know, clinical psychology. On these disciplines and vice versa um, and in particular speech and language therapists I think are very important. Um, mm -hmm. Well you've said all the right things there Ryan. Yeah I was just I was, <laughs> I was just going to ask about you know the alignment with um, speech and language therapy and, and psychology you know because as a pre as a speech and language therapist I often feel like oh I need a psychologist in this session you know so yeah, what do you think well, about that, Brian? I guess that, you know, from different perspectives, we're both addressing the connectedness of people 
to those in their social worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, That's... And, you know, that disconnect might arise from a speech pathology or might arise from a behavioral problem or an emotional problem that leads the person to be you know, quite insular. Um, but so we're, we're working at, you know, mm-hmm. this, we're working towards the same end, same goal, which is for the person to be, you know, yeah. restored to their social world. Mm-hmm. I think that's so so important because yeah. I think certainly um, a lot of the speech and language therapists I know probably you know what attracts us to working with this client group is is getting people back to that connectedness and that participation with their social lives whatever that looked like um, and I think it's interesting just from a personal point of view as the people who are maybe supporting communication difficulties we might end up being the ones that start to hear from our clients or patients the the difficulties that they are maybe experiencing psychologically or emotionally and I think that's where Jan maybe it was kind of coming from in terms of at what point does speech and language therapy end and it becomes neuropsychology clinical yeah psychology Um, so I think it's it's really nice whenever we're able to kind of work jointly um, with a person. I personally really enjoy that. And it sounds like you get a lot out of working with speech therapists as well, Brian. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the varied perspectives that different members of the team bring and then co-working to help, you know, achieve the goals that people present to us, it's both effective, but it's also wonderfully stimulating to work in because you're you're constantly Mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I've learned a lot from working with the psychology team. So um, I always feel more confident in the particularly social communication and cognitive communication, knowing that I can run to the psychology office and say, this is what I've been doing. What do you think? You know, Um, because I think one of the other areas that we we have a lot of crossover and you know, it's certainly not an area that I'm trained in as men is mental health, you know. Um often, well, in my experience of working with people with brain injuries, whether it was pre-existing or whether it's a result of the injury, you know, some mental health often presents. So, you know, having that support from a psychology Mm -hmm. team is I think it's so it's so interesting, isn't it? And we or we could spend all night talking about the crossover between speech and language yes. therapy and psychology and working as a, as an MDT, um, but uh, maybe that's for another episode. But tonight we're talking about something a bit different, aren't we, Jan? We are. We are. So, are we ready to get into I'm the ready. topic? Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> okay. So, like Helen was saying um, in the intro, we all know that you know in the back of our minds that we need to be adding to the body of ev- evidence to demonstrate our effectiveness of the, our profession. And what working with Brian has shown me, and uh, I am still learning, as I always say, is how to do that within my everyday practice by being a little bit more focused. So, Brian, here's me a sole speech and language therapist. Maybe I don't have a great psychology team around me. Maybe I'm just, you know, a a practitioner out there on my own. Wanting to start gathering data or evidence on my interventions. Where do I start? Well, you could do worse than to start looking at what's called single case experimental design. In the past, this has been called single subject research or N of one trials, sounds very clinical, 
<laughs> but it's, it's a set of methodologies which allow confidence in research findings arising from work with just one person or a very small group. The methodologies are an attempt okay. to have experimental control where our subject group may be too rare or too idiopathic in their presentation to do traditional between group designs. Um, so you're probably familiar with the idea of, um, you know, the randomized control trial or other kind of between group. Yes, gold mm -hmm. standard. Um, but yeah, those kind of uh, trials can be very difficult to do because they're very costly. And they usually kind of depend on everybody mm -hmm. in that trial having the same diagnosis. And uh, you may have, you know, in your in your uh, rehab group, just one person with a particular kind of word finding difficulty that you're working with at that time. Um, and so it doesn't always lend itself to, to doing mm -hmm. uh, a, a bigger study. Mm. Can I um, ask a super quick question, Brian? Just mm -hmm. um, I'm going to listen with my, my hat on as if I don't know all of these words and, and do a wee bit of jargon busting. You used the yeah. word idiopathic. Can you give us a quick kind of definition of what you're meaning by that? If, in case we've got the average Joe listening to us who maybe hasn't heard that term before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just that the, the presentation that the person has is, you, you know, unique to them. Um, mm. that, that they've had some pathology affecting mm -hmm. um, a, a particular set of brain circuits or a particular part of the brain. And there aren't a lot of other people, you know, out there with that same, that same lesion or that same injury. And so their problem might be very unique to them. And so that's what, I guess, those kind of presentations really work well in terms of single case experimental design. Yeah, and I think also the further complicating factor for a randomized control trial is that you're not only trying to control the injury or the issue, but you're trying to control age and, mm -hmm. you know, backgrounds and education and time since injury. And, yeah. that, and so that just that just kind of blows us out of the water, doesn't it? Can, it? Yeah, it can make, um, you know, between group designs almost impossible in rehab. Mm -hmm. Which I think, unless you're, yeah, no, me. yeah. So Brian, unless, oh, that we talk a lot about gold standard evidence, but actually, when you really think about it, it's very hard to do in terms of that being the gold standard randomized control trials when you're working with people who are real people with real difficulties and disabilities, isn't it? So instead, Brian, you would say that um, single case experimental design can be a helpful thing to use. Yeah, and um, you know, use use the term their gold standard. And uh, recently, the Oxford Group on um, Evidence Based Medicine or Evidence Based Practice have actually elevated well controlled single case experimental design up into that same group as uh, kind of oh, like level A evidence. Okay, well. yeah, that's really good to hear. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that, Brian. How does that work? Um, Is it? <clears throat> <laughs> um, is, it is it complicated? Okay, so it it is and it <laughs> isn't. It's actually you know really really simple at one level, and so I'll start with the simple version, and we can get more complex as we go on. When when you've got someone who's right, okay. had an injury or some kind of uh, thing befall them, there's going to be a degree of natural recovery going on, and so your intervention has to mm -hmm. make a difference above and beyond that natural recovery. Mm -hmm. So the, the basis of single okay. case experimental design is that you are taking 
not just a before therapy and after therapy measure, but actually measurements as you're going along. So snapshots of how they're doing in a kind of baseline period, which is just looking at how they're doing in natural recovery or treatment as usual. And then when you do your intervention, what difference does that make? Again, looking at it in a time series and then stopping that intervention for a while and seeing how the person progresses. And so those snapshots um, is a different way of thinking about research. Most experimental design of the between groups ones, you, you measure okay. someone as they come into the study, after the study, and maybe at follow-up. Mm. Okay. And so... Um... Have you got a case study, you, and it doesn't have to be speech and language therapy, have you got a case you could maybe chat us through to sort of demonstrate what you're um, Well, I guess I could about? just talk about the, the first time I used the single case experimental design. Um, I was still a trainee awesome. clinical psychologist, and I was working with a gentleman who we call David, who'd sustained a stroke in his right hemisphere. Uh, he was visuospatially gifted prior to his stroke, but after damage to his right parietal cortex, had lost the ability to perceive the left-hand side of space, uh, a condition called visuospatial neglect. So I was interested in applying a then novel intervention called limb activation therapy. Essentially, uh, a device is worn in the left hand, which would sound an alert, which was then cancelled by any movement in the left-hand side. So basically, this device attracted his, his attention to the left-hand side of his body repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, so I used uh, repeat measures um, that were sensitive to neglect, such as the line bisection test and another one called the star cancellation test. And then I also measured his upper and lower limb strength. Now, the lower limb measure there served as control, as I didn't expect to change there. Um, so measuring uh, this tendency to neglect the left-hand side of space in a baseline was important, as I said, to control for natural recovery. And then the repeated measures were able to demonstrate an improvement when he wore this device daily for a three-week period. So there we did a kind of, you know, we had a baseline. Uh, I think it was, I think it was also three weeks, and then an intervention period, which was three weeks, and then mm -hmm. we looked at a return to baseline. So mm. not the strongest design I've ever used, but it was the. the, the I was a student. Oh, you were a student, Brian. <laughs> but, but he sticks in quite clear cut, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, do you know, you can see that you've got your kind of pre-intervention measure, your during intervention measure and your post-intervention measure. Um, so that's, you know, it's quite clear. Don't don't sell yourself short. You've done very well, <laughs> uh -huh. even as a trainee. <laughs> um and so well, I, had a, I had a very, very good supervisor in uh, the uh, amazing Tom McMillan. And uh, yeah, he, he was able to um, yeah, help me through that design and intervention and then like work out the statistics. So because we were able to present statistics that this was a significant change attributable to the device, we were able to then publish that uh, in neuropsychological rehabilitation, if I remember. Great. Yeah, and then also, you know, I mean, that would have been pretty early on with assistive was, tech, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, one uh, of the nice things yeah. about working with David was that he had in baseline and unbidden by me, just spontaneously started drawing self-portraits, um, mm. which he was doing repeatedly, almost daily. Mm -hmm. Now, in baseline, all of these lacked a left-hand side. So he's looking in the mirror and trying to draw himself. He felt they were complete, 
But to me, he was missing the left-hand side of his face. But then during the intervention, the whole of the face began to appear. At first, kind of, it wasn't connected up correctly, but he was paying attention to it. And then laterally, mm. he was drawing very nice self-portraits. So, yeah, it was really gratifying to see that uh, change and to know that in some way it was attributable to the intervention rather than any kind of natural recovery there. And that's that's what it's all about, isn't it? You you want yeah. to, it's all well and good doing research, but you want it to have an actual practical implication for people, don't you? Outcome. Absolutely. And, and how nice you know, for him and for his family, I bet, yeah. to have seen that very clear progress. Yeah, because um, when he was attending to the left-hand yeah. side of space more, he actually started to attend to the left-hand side of his body more. So this contracted mm. left arm, he actually started to massage the fingers more um, and I think brought about a recovery. When we, we looked mm -hmm. at the uh, change in his uh, upper limb motor score, we found that it actually had a trend towards uh, a significant improvement as well. Although that wasn't the main aim, it had a nice follow-on. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's the thing, isn't it? I suppose these things are always going to have unexpected benefits as well. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, I, I, okay, I got this advice on leaving university from uh, my then supervisor. And at the time, I was just like, oh, thanks a lot, Professor O'Mara. That's really, really obvious. He said the words, um, do everything for a reason. Mm -hmm. And actually, mm. yeah. That is so, yes, yes. such and a so good. Then, you yeah. know, quite often, you're, you're faced with like, you're doing an intervention because it's what you were taught to do or it's what everybody does. But if you can mm. do an intervention and know that it was effective, then you keep that in your repertoire of techniques. If you do mm -hmm. it repeatedly and find it's ineffective, you yeah. dump it. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, we do rehab to try and make a difference. Yeah. And if we're not making a difference, we may as well leave that technique that we were using behind and try something else. So be before we talk about a uh, speech mm -hmm. and language therapy example, Brian, are there are there more than one? Is there more than one way to do a single yeah, case there design? Are, um, lots of different ways, and I I know that um, okay. people are probably going to be really kind of you know waiting on tenterhooks for resources that they can follow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I would direct people to the work of uh, Robin Tate uh, in Sydney. Um, she has spent. Oh, is that R O B Y N? Is R O B Y N? <laughs> <laughs> right, excellent. And Tate -A -T -E. is that T A T E? Yes. And apologies to excellent. Robin if her okay, thank misspelled you, her first name, but well, we'll double check and we can put it in the show notes. So can, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she's written. Um, she's dedicated a lot of her career to to making clinicians better at evidencing how they um, how they demonstrate effect. And and she's quite critical as well of badly designed studies. So in, in a nutshell, there's really two ways of controlling um, in single case experimental designs. Um, one is that your repeated measure is used over several different conditions so that you're uh, introducing the intervention, withdrawing the intervention, and then perhaps reintroducing it or introducing a, a modified version of the initial intervention. So that is important. This A, it's mm -hmm. called an A, B, A, B design. 
that you're going back to rehab as usual or, or no intervention for a period every now and then to see that your benefits are due to your intervention. Another is um, that you're showing, um, you're maybe carrying out several repeated measures, one that you expect theoretically to change as a result and one that you're not expecting change. Um, and that showing the difference between those two as well is quite important for, you know, just philosophically to kind of demonstrate that it was due to the intervention on that mm -hmm. measure that you thought would change. She is also very keen that we are prospective in the way that we do these studies. And all of the statistics that we need to use in this kind of field um, all depend on randomization, some element of randomization. So in the same way as in a randomized control trial, you are randomly assigned to the active treatment or the placebo treatment. In the single case world, um, the length of time that your baseline goes on for and the length of time that your interventions needs to have a degree of randomness. because That's a fundamental assumption of the tests, of the statistical tests. Okay, that's really that's really interesting. I think that's a really helpful point to, to note. I don't think I would have necessarily thought yeah. of that. Um, but this is why I'm not a researcher. <laughs> yes, I'm quickly writing I'm I'm quickly writing down notes as we go. I'm 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 saying I've been making a joke with Brian um that this is like a supervision session for me. So um I'm I'm taking notes as we go. <laughs> um okay, so shall we talk about our speech and language therapy mm -hmm. case? Yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. Everybody ready? Yep. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Um and this is just this isn't actually a real person, but it's a fairly standard sort of presentation. So um, I've got a man who has moderate dysarthria. Um, when speaking, he mumbles and uses a low volume, making it difficult for his speech to be understood. We're just about to start some motor speech, looking at breast support and volume. And I've got my supervision recession with Brian. And I'm like, okay, how do I go about designing a single case design for this guy? Um, my question is, should I allocate additional resources up front and give him like an intensive program? Or should I just do every like normal planning? So maybe two sessions a week as opposed to maybe eight sessions a week which is a big commitment but yeah what mm -hmm. what what so do I do Brian? presumably this is in a rehab center where there's a therapeutic milieu and he's resident there yes oh yes I I have a wonderful and working environment where I've wonderful, got all the resources wonderful. I need so we need to take account yes. of the fact that he is going to be getting feedback about his mumbled, quiet speech a lot of the time. So that every time he has an interaction and people don't yeah. understand him, they're going to be saying, uh, can you speak up? Or um, I need... So that that's naturalistic feedback. And we know that that's therapeutic. So yeah. my kind of feeling yeah. would be that maybe during the assessment period that we don't rush to do the intervention and just measure... Okay. Some aspect of that that's easy to do as a snapshot. Um, I'm, okay. I'm thinking um, of uh, 
case that we worked on some years ago. And what the therapist working with that chap did was they just made a, a, a minute's recording every now and then. And then that was mm-hmm. independently rated and blind rated by someone in, someone in the team who didn't know him and had no kind of contact with him. So they were just trying to give a rating out of 10 or out of 100 on how clear his speech was and how what the volume of his speech was like. Mm. So by taking those okay. repeated snapshots, um, you would be able to see what what is this improving or is it staying the same in baseline? And then maybe do your intervention at the severity or the intensity that you imagine. So, so okay. So when you're getting, so when you're saving these recordings and then you're getting the person to listen to them, they don't know the no, dates. No, and they were ideally you could present them in a random order so that you know mm-hmm. when they came in time. Yes. But that the person listening to them and rating them is blind to the condition. Now, that would be ideal because then you've ensured okay. another aspect of the uh, design and makes it more robust. You've, you've blinded the rating to condition. Okay. Okay. So you've got, so you got your baseline, you've got your baseline data, and then would I, would I then trial both types of intervention? So the intensive versus the more... Re- business as usual or therapy as usual or would I well I mean this uh, strikes me as something that would work really well as a kind of a b a b plus you know that you're you could you could you know after your baseline do your standard yeah baseline is always a which which is is confusing it'd be nice if baseline was okay b stood for baseline (laughs) b if it was baba baba Let's change it. Let's change it. It's now Baba. Yeah, it's it's a convention that comes from behavioral research in the eighties, and for some reason, um, A became baseline. Anyway, so in your baseline, you're just yeah. seeing how he's yeah. doing over time with the feedback he's getting day to day from all the support workers and nurses and other people okay. who are residing there, That's and excellent. then you do yeah. your, you know, two hours a week level that that intensity of sorry two hours a week. Um, and then yep yeah you... now that to to be this to be the same as the intensive because I'm imagining you still want to sort of uh, tell me if I'm wrong if I'm saying okay my intensive's maybe going to be like two eight hours a week for two weeks that would be sixteen hours so would would I do this sixteen hours for the less intensive um does that matter. Mm-hmm. No, because I think, you know, one of the questions you're asking is how to um, use limited resources of your time. So you mm. you might just okay. try it at the lower yep. intensity. Yep. So you're doing two hours a week and seeing, is that working to improve his presentation? And and then you okay. may then decide to go back to baseline for a while and then do the really intensive um, work to see, has that then made a difference was it worth putting that time in has it been more effective for the guy um yeah okay because i i guess in my mind i was i've i've always thought okay so if i do eight weeks two hours a week that's 16 hours and then intensive i do it the other way i do 
two hours a day for four days for two weeks, which is 16 as well. But you're saying that I could actually do, you know, two hours for two weeks, mm -hmm. go back to baseline and then do the intensive two hours. Four days a week for two weeks. Four days a week yeah, for yeah. two weeks as um, well. And, and it would be good as well to introduce that yep. notion of randomness somewhere in your design so that you're, you're kind of maybe saying that that, okay. that uh, first period could be two weeks, it could be three weeks, um, that, you know, that there's a, a okay. random nature you're drawing from a hat. Um, and then again for the intervention period. And is that what you would do to create that randomness? You would just sort of, you know, go on one of those those um, internet where they pick numbers sort of thing or roll a dice and go, okay, for this for this A or this B, this is roll yeah. the dice. I mean, there will be constraints be. as well because your rehab isn't going to go on forever. So you, you okay. might estimate how long the person is no. going to be with you. And then from that, you know, you, you've got 20 weeks, we'll say, because he's also got a significant behavior problem and he's likely to be there for maybe about six months. Um, so you would then say, OK, we've yep. got six months, then um, how many weeks in six months? 24 weeks. Um, and then you're, you're <laughs> kind of like somehow <laughs> parceling that out in a random way. Uh, mm. Yeah. Um, OK. So that's how I would go about that one. Yep, and then when we're looking at, so these are the questions that all go that go through my mind. That when we're looking at rating, and I know we're going to use a non like a, like a non clinical person probably. It's okay to use like a one out of ten. It's okay to you you know it doesn't have to be some high tech. No, no, no. Rating. Um, so yeah, the repeat measure uh, is often observational or, um, you know, a subpart of a standardized yep. test um, so that um, the more important thing is that yep. it's administered in the same way each time and it's rated by the same person or the same group of people. If you wanted to introduce, an, uh, you know, even yep. more rigor, uh, you might get two independent raters and then see that uh -huh. their, rater, their ratings kind of correspond okay. somehow mm -hmm. um, or correlate highly. Um but yeah, usually it's acceptable as long as like one person is, is rating and ideally if they're also blind to condition. Okay. So you, yeah. So you're, yeah. You're, you're constantly just okay. trying to I mean, I think bias. And we all, we all carry mm. bias around with us. You know, when yeah. we're doing uh, an intervention that we like or we somehow think has value um, and we are rating it, we're more likely to see improvement where maybe that improvement is, is, is mm -hmm. delusional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah. So um, yeah, and that, yeah. that's one of the reasons why evidence-based medicine came around because you know a lot of people were doing treatments that they really believed in but weren't necessarily evidence, and so you mm. just had authority figures, you know, s selling snake oil or whatever <laughs> <laughs> as the thing that would make a difference. Yeah. Uh, whereas actually, when you subject the snake oil to a randomized control trial, it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> this is the end of episode three, which is the first part of our two-part discussion about research in practice. Please listen to episode four for the rest of this chat. <laughs>